I um, I don't know whether it's possible to cultivate a style. Nobody is precisely what they think they are. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it, where you find it, where you find it. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it. Maybe in the last moments of my life, moments of my life, I will be curious to know what means to die. Welcome to Folk Phenomenology. My name is Sam Rocha. This is episode 16 of season one, featuring special guest Alessandra Harris on Black Catholics and Story. Today's episode was originally recorded on April 25th, 2021. Folk Phenomenology is sponsored by Whip and Stock Publishers, who published my 2015 book, Folk Phenomenology, Education, Study, and the Human Person. Give us this day, daily prayer for today's Catholic. The Institute for Christian Socialism, building a movement of the ecumenical Christian left. Solidarity Hall, Eden plus Utopia. Revelation Cable Company, Vancouver Custom Cables and Pedalboard Solutions. Where Peter is, there is the church. The Juan Diego Network, Catholic Audio for Latinos, and Commonweal Magazine, the leading lay Catholic voice for commentary on religion, politics, and culture. The featured sponsor for today's episode is Black Catholic Messenger, an online publication for Black Catholics. I am recording this segment right now from Washington, D.C., just outside of Washington, D.C. I'll be going in this evening um, to George Washington uh, University to uh, meet uh, with some students in a seminar that have been reading uh, my uh, most recent book, The Syllabus's Curriculum. And there I am hoping uh, to meet another one of the editors of Black Catholic Messenger, uh, Nate Tinner Williams. Uh, the other editor, as you'll find out, is Alessandra Harris herself, who we'll soon speak to. Um, just yesterday, we drove up uh, Mount Vernon, and I was thinking once again of Gunnar Gunderson's. Uh, short reflection, powerful reflection uh, on Mount Vernon. Their recent coverage of Pope Francis's remarks to the World Meeting of Popular Movements in uh, article in conference address, Pope Francis praises George Floyd protesters as collective Samaritans by Nate Tanner Williams uh, it was published recently. I would encourage everyone uh, to take a look at that and most of all become regular readers uh, and subscribers to Black Catholic Messenger. You can find links to all this in the show notes along with all of our other wonderful sponsors and the friends of the show. If you would like to support Folk Phenomenology, please share this episode. Subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform. Leave us a review or a rating, and you can also drop a tip if you'd like. You can also find Folk Phenomenology on social media accounts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Today's episode, I speak with Alessandra Harris. Uh, it continues the literary theme carrying over from last week's episode, moving more into the realm of fiction, but also within questions of representation within fiction, uh, questions of, of authorship that bring us into a conversation on black Catholics. This has been a subject, of course, that has been discussed but I think in today's show, we really zone in on this question of black Catholicism in the United States 
and its importance, but also the questions and issues it raises, and also, of course, its historical context. I think it's going to be a really illuminating discussion uh, that shows, above all, and I think this is what I took away from it probably most, the power of story. And this season, we've continually looked at this fundamental link between the Word and the world, and the way in which the Word is made flesh in the world, and the way in which the world is fashioned by the speech of the Word. But I think that this emphasis on story and on its creation and of the creation of worlds within stories, through stories, for our world, it deepens and extends and enriches this basic idea of delighting in the world, of loving the world. Dilexit mundum. Today on Folk Phenomenology, I have Alessandra Harris. Alessandra, thank you so much for coming on to my show. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. You are a, a writer, an author, a novelist, co-founder of Black Catholic Messenger. Um, you're very busy and you have a new uh, novel that is coming out uh, winter 2021, Last Place Seen. Uh, could you start off maybe by introducing yourself to our audience in terms of your writing and your work and, and perhaps maybe your, your upcoming novel, which is your third, uh, sure. I believe, right? Sure, yeah. So this is my third novel. Um, my first, I'm, I'm published through a small press, and my first was like a women's fiction suspense. Um, my second was a psychological thriller, and this one is more um, like a mystery thrill thriller. It centers around a 10-year-old girl who goes missing, and um, her you'll see like the, her family and people who intersect with her life. And so I'm excited for this book to come out. It's my first where I'm kind of introducing the Catholic faith in the story a little bit more. Um, and yeah, one of the characters goes to Our Lady of Peace, which is like a really popular church in um, Santa Clara in the Silicon Valley where I'm located. Um, so yeah, I'm excited for this one. Wow. Well, in terms of this show, um, we've had conversations with uh, we've walked all the way up to the doorstep, I guess, of fiction. We've had everything to, from historical fiction to nonfiction, creative nonfiction, uh, e poetry, translation, so on and so forth. But we've never had an outright uh, fiction writer or novelist in, in, in that sense. I wonder if you could say a little bit about um, how you understand uh, your work as a writer and as a novelist and fiction maybe in general, kind of some of the general things and maybe also kind of some of your character, how you approach a character and, and how you uh, uh, kind of personify these, these people in, in your writing. Well, I would say that I, the books that I've written, I've written because I felt like I had something to say and that might sound yeah. like counterintuitive. Um, and I know that there's people like African-American people who feel like we shouldn't have to write issue books. We should just sure. be able to write fluff if we want. Like we could sure. write something just because it's a fun book. But for me personally, I like to write 
books that have um, that try to like explore characters and topics that aren't talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with my um, third book that I'm working on, one of the characters is formally incarcerated and it looks at him trying to re-enter society and like get a job and be able to support uh, or help support his family. He has a wife and a toddler. Um, so I really wanted to like humanize people who like millions of people who are in that situation of being formally incarcerated. Sure. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting kind of, and as you noted, uh, even somewhat controversial uh, literary question of to what degree should uh, art that has, art that that rep, that brings representation to communities that haven't been historically uh, represented, uh, to what extent do those communities have like some kind of like a duty to, to represent, right? I mean... Um, could I mean maybe that's how I understand the controversy at least is that how you think of it or or maybe you think of it a bit differently um I would say not so much a duty although um I could see some people saying that but mm-hmm. I would say that a lot of times um publishers and agents and and the marketplace wants African Americans and people of color to write books that they consider um like issue books right and that and the thing is that like we are just people like anyone else right and it's like sometimes you just want to write a story that has nothing to do with anything that's um a particularly like important issue to society absolutely no i'm recalling um Paris Review, one of their old, old interviews with Ralph Ellison, they asked him about the the state of the black novel uh, in, in his time. And I recall um, being very shocked, actually, that w- his response was that he found it too provincial. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose you can say that when you're Ralph Ellison, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but does this does this kind of uh, remark of, of his get into in some sense this sort of sensibility? I mean, I, I think Toni Morrison also said something along the lines of like you know, um, everything she writes is in some sense um, political in a sense because she's writing it and and that's you know because of who she who she who she was. Yeah, and I would say that with Toni Morrison, what she did was radical at the time because she centered her work around black people. And I remember an interview where a white woman had asked her, well, when are you gonna start writing about like the white community? You know, Uh kind of like Uh that, that that her writing about the black community was somehow less than people who write about white communities or what we consider mainstream. I remember Toni Morrison saying like, you know, why would you even ask me that question? So it's like for, and the thing is like Toni Morrison was such an acclaimed writer and went on to win the um, Nobel prize in literature. And it's like, she, she was one of the like most like widely read and respected authors who didn't feel like she had to compromise and you know write about 
anything other than what she wanted to write about, which was her experience in the black community. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that um, I see this in music as well uh, a great deal. And that's more my medium. So I'm probably switching gears just a bit so that I don't get too far <laughs> off of uh, out of my lane here. But, you know, I think one of the interesting enigmas of, you know, let's say just like soul music or neo soul music is you have these artists like, let's say, like Jill Scott, for instance, who is incredible, has had a lot of, you know, popular success or what have you, but has never been considered kind of having a kind of breakout moment. Even someone like D'Angelo, for instance, um, is still sometimes seen as, you know, not, you know, completely mainstream or pop or whatever. And I think this is kind of like, you know, you can go all the way back in the history of music, like to Motown and the attempt to kind of uh, break the mold out of sort of bl black music. I mean, Ray Charles's life in some case, but I, I find this odd for, for a particular reason, because as much as there is this kind of stereotype or, or in some ways reality of these kind of uh, inside forms of, of music, you know, in, in my community, be someone like Selena, for instance, um, there's an, it's not the case that the so-called majority uh, literary or musical aren't there taking notes and stealing everything they can uh, from the successes and the insights and whatnot of those communities. So sometimes it strikes me as a kind of, kind of like a, like a one-way street where they can kind of move very freely between inside and outside uh, mediums and, and, and art forms. Whereas, you know, if you do too much in one way or in another way or serve your particular community in too visible a way, then you get labeled as kind of like, you know, needing to have a breakout moment. I don't know if that works, though, from music across to literature or maybe even what you think about it in terms of music there. Well, I think that it's hard for me to say because like Jill Scott and D'Angelo are mainstream in my mind, you know, <laughs> because it's like... <laughs> I, like for me, Jill Scott's debut album, which I believe came out in like 2000, that was like a breakout album. Everyone I knew was listening to it. Everywhere sure. you went, it was being played. So like I know sometimes I've seen like um, funny things where it's like black people who are only famous with black people. And yeah, I yeah. always look at these lists. I'm like. I didn't know white people didn't know about them. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of hard to, so I can't look at it from a lens of like white mainstream media since I'm not there. So it's okay. kind of hard for me to like say that, but I know, for example, with literature, that it's a lot harder because I know a lot of really talented authors who weren't able to break into like the big five mainstream um, writing so a lot of them are published with smaller publishers, like uh -huh. similar to how I'm published with a smaller sure. publisher. And it's really hard for our books to ever break out to that type of like mainstream readership. So um, although I, my publisher does have several books that are New York Times or USA Today bestsellers. Mm -hmm. So um, they, they, do, they do well, but it's a lot different than like 
for example, with like a album where it kind of is e easier to be found, easier to be streamed. And with books, unless it's like from a big five and there it's available in all the bookstores and Target has it. And you know sure, what I mean? Like sure, sure. that it can be a lot harder. Yeah. No, that's, um, it is, it's, it's interesting. You mentioned that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> your, your point on well, on Jill Scott's very you know well taken. Um, you know that album you're mentioning has like the way on it, and like yeah. you know you can whistle dun 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 dun, and everyone knows exactly exactly like those three notes. Like everyone knows the song, kind of a thing. Um, exactly. It was interesting when I got into uh, Neil Soul music because I was playing in a band. Um, <laughs> the lead singer uh, came and kind of uh, she had a like a thumb drive. And she said, Sam, you have to understand that if you're going to play in this band and, and you know, it, it took me a long time it's actually to get the offer into the band. I was sitting in at the time and kind of playing in some side projects that other musicians were in. But there was this um, moment where she's like, OK, so you're in the band now. But now that you're in the band, you have to realize that, like, we have a vocabulary here that is not just like the set list. It's not just like, you know, what's coming up at the next gig. You need to know, like these 300 songs that were on that mm -hmm. thumb drive and you need to know like the the hooks and the melodies and like everything about them you know um and uh and it was so funny at the time because uh for me um this was an entire introduction to music that with the exception of maybe michael jackson or stevie wonder or you know a few you know maybe some marvin Gaye. like almost all of it was unknown to me and oh, wow. the and this was like the common vocabulary and you can bet all of Jill Scott's albums were on there. Um, but uh, yeah, that's a really great point uh, you're making there. This in some ways segues us to some of your other literary work or journalistic work. I don't know how you would um, uh, class it, but you're the co-founder of Black Catholic Messenger. And I was really excited whenever I saw that project uh, taking off and I've I've uh, I've very gainfully read I mean to the extent that maybe in music or in literature um, questions of representation in and out uh, groups all these kinds of challenges exist I feel like in some ways um, well I, I would love to hear how you see that linking up with um, uh, black Catholicism representation of black Catholics and I, I would I would think. Correct me here again if I'm if I'm wrong, but the um, the consciousness raising that's that's been happening uh, that I would understand some of your most recent work uh, to to be doing. Uh, just could you would you mind kind of bringing those worlds together here a bit? Yeah, definitely. And I think it does go hand in hand because, like I was uh, mentioning, that a lot of times black authors aren't able to break into like the mainstream big five publishing. And likewise with black Catholics, we are almost invisible from Catholic media. I know. And it's, I mean, like I've literally seen people on Twitter say they don't believe that black Catholics exist. Yeah. And it's like, oh, there gosh. are 3 million of us in the United States alone. Yeah. So it's like, for people to, to not believe that black Catholics exist just speaks to how we are almost non-existent in Catholic media. And a, and a lot of times in Catholic spaces, we're invisible. It, yeah. You know, we're not called to a seat at the table. But yeah. um, I would, so I would say that 
um, Nate, who is like the president and editor yeah. of Black Catholic Messenger, he yeah. really pulled us together because there was definitely a need for sure. that representation. And I love how um, we featured so many different Black Catholic voices. So it's not just us giving our opinions or kind of covering news from our perspective, but right. we're really reaching out and trying to get as many Black Catholics to be able to have their voices heard also. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is like, uh, it's it's really interesting because I think, I, I assume you already know this, but I mean, just in case, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Mexican, uh, Mexican-American. Um, and... Uh, you know, the ascendancy of the uh, Latino or Hispanic community in the U.S. church, in some sense, I think was always very frustrating to almost admit, at least for me, because like Spanish is the oldest colonial language <laughs> in the Americas. Um, you know, the, the, there's nothing new about Catholicism within our cultural communities, nor in this country, you know, Texas, New Mexico, California, like all the, you know, we literally have towns that are called Los Angeles, you know, Sacramento, <laughs> you know, Santa Fe. Like, I mean, literally, like you can see everything there. And yet, nonetheless, it took so long in some ways for us to make the argument to a kind of white stream mainstream Catholic church that, you know, um, that, that we were here. And I, in some ways I've thought about black Catholicism and black Catholics in the United States and how to the degree that it was difficult or almost, I might say insulting to like, kind of have to advocate for something that was already there. Uh, it reminds me of some of King's writings on, on freedom and it's like it's not that i'm not free like obviously i'm free it's just that you don't treat me that way <laughs> but you know i mean north i mean african catholicism is as old as the church itself you know mm -hmm. the alexandrian church uh the early church in africa the 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 the, the region of kind of afro-eurasia so to speak you know and the the middle east and all those you know i mean the the whether it's a diasporic you know african identity that we talk about in, in the context of the u.s or just kind of the presence of blackness at all i mean <laughs> there are definitely no mexicans in the bible because we weren't invented yet but you know <laughs> there's there's plenty of, of 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 black africans you know in this mix and so i wonder if you have any similar feelings to the ones that my community had uh uh in our kind of struggle for representation in our church yeah, definitely. And wasn't it just this week in the daily readings that we are introduced to the Ethiopian eunuch who's um, converted by Philip? I, I think that that was a reading this week. Um, so yeah, even in the New Testament, we're there, you know? And when I was reading the history of Black Catholics by Cyprian Davis, he uh -huh. does a yeah, really yeah. good yeah, he does a really good job of filling in those gaps. Um, and it's interesting because when we think about the African-American population and how there's 3 million people, and I, I think that's about 8% or maybe 6 to 8% of all Black people are Catholic. It's a really small number. 
Um, and in the history of Black Catholics, Cyprian Davis talks about how after um, after the Civil War and after Black people have their freedom, yeah. that the bishops met and they some of the bishops the plan was with Rome Rome's agreement and kind of urging to meet and to specifically talk about evangelizing the newly freed black population sure. and setting up churches and setting up schools and after the bishops met they decided not to go forward with that huh. because there was a lot of people there's some of the bishops who were basically saying, I'll leave if we do that. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. so it, so it, it's like he was saying that that was a huge disappointment. And because of that decision, that's one of the reasons why there's not as many African Americans compared to Protestants. Sure. And it's like when I, when I was, saw that, I just thought it was so sad. And then we, we know about the racism that black people experienced and being excluded from the priesthood and, you sure. know, all of that. Sure. Um, so I think I think it's really important to know the history and because it didn't things don't just happen by accident. Things right. aren't just a coincidence. Right. There's usually a reason for everything. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, you, you hear these explanations of, you know, well, at that time, this was simply, you know, I, they're very Gnostic. Just like, like, like we have to take it for granted that at that time, you know, people didn't understand that racism was evil or they didn't, you know, like they were sort of kind of. But when you hear about these meetings documented by these great, you know, historians and others, you know, like, like Cyprian Davis and, and, and others, you find out that they're often, uh, it's not nearly as unconscious as people think. There's actually often very conscious uh, and, and, and clear decisions made to, uh, to do that. And yet, nonetheless, by the way, as far as I know, the amount of black Catholics in the United States today, I believe, outnumbers the African Methodist Episcopalian Church, which is often what people kind of think of when they think of kind of the black church. It's AME or kind of holiness or that kind of thing. So it's small, but it's powerful, no? Yeah, I would absolutely agree. And I think it's also interesting to note that the huge population gains happened mainly in like the 60s and the 70s. Huh. When you, it kind of coincided with the Black Power movement and Civil Rights movement, and you had a lot of um, Black Catholics evangelizing other Black Catholics and uh -huh. making it a priority. Um, so it's it is fairly recent that there has been a really a population gain, but I think that the way that the church right now has been reacting to the um, new racial justice movement that was really um, yeah. started in 2020, we're not going to get a whole lot of black Catholics on board with the way the church is responding. Yeah. I mean, um, it, it's, uh, I agree completely. Uh, it's kind of powerful too, to think of that reality as more than just sort of like, a strategic or evangelization based reality but like you know i think the church um flourishes demographically 
whenever the testament to the faith has moral credibility, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, this last election cycle, even putting aside the court of, you know, the, the question of political parties and, and, and even putting aside the sort of the federal election, you know, there was a prominently, uh, there was a prominently shared priest with very slick media who himself had given a homily that gave an apologia, a defense of, of lynching. Oh, wow. I didn't hear about that. Wow. Oh, well, it sounds like I need to send you some links. I mean, <laughs> I don't know where the bar gets set for moral credibility, but I'm pretty sure that's like way below, you know. Um, and then in addition to that, you know, the, uh, the assumptions made with respect to uh, political parties, but then of course the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, and the attempts to to do what people did to King and have done in every season uh, to do boys and others was to you know uh, paint them as red scare kind of Marxists, this that and the other, opposed to the faith, the nuclear family, all those talking points. Um, I assume that's what you're talking about, right? Yes, um, I am talking about that and. I've actually been really disappointed as a cradle Catholic because people that I have followed for years and looked up to as like spiritual teachers, ha I feel have really shown an ugly side of racism that I didn't know existed there. And I've had to un like stop following, not just like not talking about social media, but like no longer following the work of um, several um, Catholics who have just shown that they refuse to um, honestly engage with the issues of racism in the country. Sure, I mean it's it's um, it does produce this I think disingenuous response of oh well you're just canceling right <laughs> people disagree with you but I, I think um, uh, I think this is actually a reasonable response related to this kind of issue of, of moral credibility that that one's conscience can't in good faith seek out the advice and the spiritual um uh you know can't have spirit confidence in the spiritual teachings of someone who so clearly lacks uh the ability to discern something as evil as as racism i mean right i would agree and the thing is that Catholics cannot talk about canceling and that they don't like cancel culture because they will do that to anyone who doesn't toe the line when it comes to abortion. Sure. They have no problem, like even with Amanda Gorman, um, the poet laureate, yeah, yeah, yeah. when people found her old poem that supported um, abortion rights, yeah. then Catholics wanted to cancel her. She wasn't yeah. Catholic enough. They don't, yeah. you know, don't give Biden communion. So yeah. Catholics cannot talk about, you know, <laughs> cancel culture. But in in my perspective, it's like I'm not going to support someone who doesn't value my very life. Yeah. my very existence yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's like if if people can um support even if they say that they're not racist if what they're saying and what they're doing shows that they do have like racist ideologies then i it's not it's not someone that i can follow anymore sure you know i 
sometimes I, I think about the the kind of the ethnic churches. Uh, there was a time when when Catholicism in the U.S. was a bit more of a an immigrant church. I'm thinking here about like you know, whenever Kennedy ran for president, our country was still sufficiently Protestant that he had to give a kind of an explanation to people that no, I'm not going to like take the Pope's word. Like the Pope isn't going to call me and tell me advise me on policy or anything like that, right? <laughs> which was yeah. the mainstream understanding at that time of kind of what Catholics did and how a Catholic politician would behave. During that time, though, uh, because of that kind of immigrant identity, um, you can see this in, in urban neighborhoods. Every block would have its own ethnic church. You'd have the Polish mm-hmm. Catholic church and you'd have you know, the Irish Catholic Church and you have the Italian Catholic Church and, and you'd have, you know, the, the, the Mexican Catholic Church or the Puerto Rican Catholic Church and the Filipino, you know, like the, and, mm-hmm. you know, in some cases, I have to say, I have a, I have a very split uh, mind about this because I have a lot of affection for my community's kind of Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the Misa Boricua from the Puerto Ricans. Uh, I love Polish Mass and, 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 and you know, the Polka Mass and all that. I, I love those uh, expressions. At the same time, I, I also wonder to what degree that, uh, well, for that matter, you know, you there are, um, there are obviously black Catholics can attend any mass they want, but there are churches that identify as having a kind of particular charism built around kind of African-American identity and culture, right? I think of like St. Yeah. Augustine's famously and others. Yeah, there are uh, historically black churches. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, I think I feel kind of two ways about this, that like on the one hand, I think this is a healthy way to uh, show an enculturated Catholicism, which I think is important. Yet on the other hand, I do wonder about the kind of degrees to which this kind of balkanized sense of enculturation led to the the real historical uh, uh, cases of fully segregated churches. So like where I'm from in Texas, um, the churches were often segregated between Hispanics and whites. Um, I, I had a mentor, Father Sam Holmesy, who uh, integrated one of those communities without telling his bishop, so he got into all kinds of trouble. Um, but uh, but I know there's in many cases the historic, just like the historically black colleges and universities, which they were historically black because originally black people were were segregated and not allowed to attend white institutions, right? Um, yeah. That in many cases that's the origins of some of these parishes, which is a very different. Like a black church or a uh, Hispanic, a Mexican, you know, Spanish mass or whatever that exists in a kind of um, peninsula of enculturation because in the not so recent, in the recent past, it was excluded from the mainstream. That seems to me a very different kind of uh, cultural pocket than the. than the cultures that have become part of the kind of American mainstream as we've seen with the Irish and with the Italians and, and Germans and others. I don't know if I'm making sense on this, but this is these are kind of my like my two heads about this. On the one hand, I think enculturated Catholicism is amazing. On the other hand, I, I think sometimes we can we have to be careful about making distinctions here. 
Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, in the area where I live, uh, in Silicon Valley, there's only 2% black population. So most of the churches that I go to are a mix of, I mean, like you said, it's like some churches are predominantly um, white people. Some churches are predominantly Asian, like Filipino. Sure, sure. Some, some churches are kind of more of a mix. Um, but we don't have a historically black church in San Jose, but we, um, my family does go to the one in Oakland that they okay. have from time to time. Sure. Um, so, but I would say like one of the reasons why I think that so many people leave the Catholic church, regardless of religion, or I'm sorry, not religion, regardless of what ethnicity they are, sure. is that there's a sense of like community that's lacking and that too many people will go to mass and leave and that's their interaction with the church. Yeah. And I and I think that because I would say at least in my experience that we're still pretty segregated in the country when it comes to like socializing with other people and it's like you like most of the people that I socialize with are African American. Right. And it's like I think that that could be one of the reasons why I don't feel when I go to my church as much that the people I'm that I'm with are going to like invite me to kind of that type of community more than just showing up at church and going home. Right. And like with my kids like they do like middle school ministry and the older ones do confirmation but they don't ever really hang out with the people in their classes outside uh -huh. of those classes right so I, so i don't know i think that that's one of the things because it's like what can we do to get catholics to be more in community with each other across color lines and even yeah. within color lines just to get more of that community absolutely no this is um i th i think um I, I think that you know I, I'm in I live in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, Canada, uh, so I'm not even in the country so to speak anymore. Um, I was born there, I was raised there. I went to you know, graduate school there and got married there. My wife and I are both from there. We, but uh, you know it it is interesting the ways in which um, even just you know an hour north of the border, you see a different kind of different kinds of sociological features of a society that actually do have effects on the kind of religious communities that you see gathered. Uh, obviously, there's overlaps, though, too. Uh, it's funny here because of uh, there's there's not a lot of Mexicans where I'm, uh, up here, um, but there's a lot of Filipinos. And so uh, in many cases, I will uh, pass, so to speak as mm. Filipino <laughs> mm -hmm. in, a, in a Catholic church because, you know, that's the kind of, that's where the demographic uh, density is from. But, you know, um, Canada has had a different relationship to even questions of like multi and interculturalism. Uh, they've, they have obviously some tensions around uh, indigenous identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. Francophone and Anglophone society. Uh, Quebec is a very different 
uh, province from the uh, other, you know, Anglophone provinces. Uh, so I'm not saying Canada's perfect. All my Canadian friends get mad at me when I do that. Like, we have problems <laughs> here too, you know. But, you know, this is maybe getting us back to the earlier points. This is just something I, I, I've noticed though. Um, I uh, Canadians up here, when they look south, and not just recently, I, I remember this this last conversation I, uh, that I'm referencing happened in 2014, before Trump, before all the, you know, before the, the last four years we've been through. When they look south, and maybe in some ways they do this to get away from their own problems or whatever, like you could psychoanalyze them. But when they look south, they just see a profoundly, this is going to bother some people, but the subjective impression from Canadians I talk to, and I'm talking here mainly like white Canadians who go to the States to shop, who love American culture, or watch the NFL every Sunday, you know, they see the United States of America is this powerful, amazing, rich, enviable in so many ways, but despicably racist society. Like, mm. like they feel it in their bones mm. about Ameri American society. Um, and to them, it's sufficiently nauseating that it's like a... Mm. It's just a white line. Like they're like, you know, America has so much to offer so many things, but I could never live there because I don't want my kids, you know, raised in that, that kind of a way. Right. Well, that makes me feel really like vindicated that you said that because yeah. as an African American person, you have no idea the extent of gaslighting we face sure. when it comes to racism. Yeah. And how many white people refuse to admit that their racism still exists? It, yeah. You know, it's just beyond infuriating the type of like pushback you get when you're talking about race um, yeah. in America. So, so that makes me feel hopeful that the outside at least sees the plight that people inside are facing. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know what your experience has been in terms of like social consciousness and, you know, what within, you know, African-American families you refer to as, you know, whether you grew up in a conscious family or a woke family or what have you. But like my own experience was I'll never forget, like my my grandfather, for instance, uh, was from Colorado, New Mexico, and he kind of hated Texas, <laughs> which is where I grew up mostly. And my dad's a Texan and my other side of the family is Texan. But he kind of always hated Texas in general. And in particular, he hated uh, people from Texas, in particular, white people from Texas. Because when he drove a truck through Texas, Texas uh, was like the line where after New Mexico, when you crossed into Texas, all of a sudden the signs of, you know, no dogs, Mexicans, or Negroes were up. And where mm. he was forced, in some sense, to live according to a kind of uh, Jim Crow that in Texas was uh, <laughs> uh, was uh, was discriminating against both African Americans and uh, Mexicans or Hispanics or Latinos or whatever you want to call us. And you know, I grew up hearing him talk about that, and I grew up seeing his anger and, and his and, and his rage in, in some ways. And I also grew up knowing about you know the uh, the Rio Grande Valley is like an eighty-five to ninety percent 
Hispanic population, but it still has the division of class where there's a white side of town and like another side of town with the railroad tracks and all that stuff. Those, I grew up seeing all those dynamics, but I'm saying all this to say like, I watched a PBS documentary about the Texas versus Hernandez case, which was in 1954. It, um, it basically had the effect of taking apart the a class apart distinction, which was kind of like the separate but but equal distinction mm -hmm. for Plessy versus Ferguson for African Americans. Mm -hmm. And seeing that there was an actual Supreme Court case and an actual like history here that I didn't know of at the time, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it was so moving because it was like, this is real. <laughs> <laughs> like I'd only heard about it from my grandpa. I'd only seen it and speculated and stuff. But you know, so much of the time, racism. I think sometimes people think that those who accuse or name things as racist are kind of constantly seeing only racism. But at least in my experience, most of the experience of seeing racism is second and third and quadruple guessing yourself, being told that wasn't racist, being like, yeah, it probably wasn't. Gosh, what's wrong with me? And then you have this floodgate moment where you're like, no, there are things that are actually racist and I'm not a crazy person. I mean, is that what you're getting at when you're talking about the relief and the gaslighting? Well, I would say to a certain extent, because I think most black people, when they've encountered racism, they know that they have, sure. they're not second guessing it. And if they talk to like their friends or their family, they'll say, absolutely. Yeah. So in that respect, I would just say that when you're trying to advocate for racial justice, that's when you get all the, what there's no racism, you yeah. know, you're, you're just talking about it. Um, as far as my family, and this is one of the reasons I don't like the whole pushback against quote unquote woke and wokeism sure. and like the whole attack about against like um, critical race theory, which was created in 1970s. Like yeah, 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 my yeah. my um, grandfather, who was born in 1924, which was before critical race theory was yeah, even yeah. you know existed. And yeah. um, he was born in um, what what was called Rhodesia when it was colonized, but is now present day Zimbabwe. But he grew up in South Africa, uh -huh. and he was what. Like back during the apartheid, there was like white, black, and what they called colored, which is people who were mixed race. Okay. So he was considered colored okay. and he um, became involved in like anti-apartheid activism and he actually got shot in the back and he um, was imprisoned on Robbins Island when Nelson Mandela was there. Wow. Um, so he, he ended up being exiled and left him and my mom and um, his family. He had eight kids and wife. Wow. They, they were exiled to um, the UK and then half of the family moved to the United States and he was a professor and the other half stayed in London. So my mom moved to the United States. Hmm. Um, and when my, so I grew up very politically aware not just about the, the um, conditions in the United States, but sure. throughout the world. Yeah. And, you know, we we grew up talking about because, you know, it's easy for people to look at like apartheid in a different part of the world and admit that that's bad. 
But then when you look at what's happening in the United States, there's always people just think that it's normal. People make excuses for it. It's not as bad, all that. So that's one of the things, though, with this whole it's like um, what the, the racial justice and social justice movement has been going on since black people were brought as slaves to this country. There's nothing new about it. So to say that it's based in French philosophers or, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. Marxist. It's just, it's completely crazy and and it's offensive. And I thought it was interesting because Bishop Barron, um, when he was criticizing the whole woke culture, he pointed to White Fragility, that book. And that's not even written by a black person. I know. It's like, can you at least... Can you at least engage black people who sure. are the head of this movement? Yeah. But, yeah. You know, so so it's. By the way, black people have, uh, black academics in particular, uh, have taken that book uh, quite to task. In fact, um, you know, it's not a, it's not a kind of uh, an uncontroversial uh, particular take on anti-racism or critical th- uh, race theory or whatever you want to say. Like you know, it's not exactly canonical. You could say. And I think that, like, I've never read the book. I don't think it's not directed towards black people. You know, it's directed towards white people. And it's like, so that's just one of the many issues I have. And it's the same thing when people are attacking Black Lives Matter. It's like, you know what? You can say whatever you want to say about Black Lives Matter. 90% of black people have been doing this and have been fighting for racial justice before Black Lives Matter was oh, created. Oh, totally. I mean, it, it's, so a, it's it, it started in 2013 after um, uh, after the acquittal of uh, the, 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 the George Zimmerman. George Zimmerman who killed yeah. Trayvon Martin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and the the you know the black like people who say, "Oh, Martin Luther King wouldn't support Black Lives Matter." It's like. <laughs> Are you kidding me? You you can't yeah. even like respond to that. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. It's just insanity. It is. Unfortunately, though, it's a kind of uh, it's passing within our church as sort of highbrow intellectual discourse, right? Um, it's you know because like for instance, like I often say, like, look, if you don't like D'Angelo's book and you're white, uh, read Tim Wise's White Like Me book, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is similarly directed. It's, it has a similar message, so on and so forth. Um, one of the things I like about Tim Wise is he's a bit more, I think, strategic in that book about not psychologizing uh, whiteness, but being a bit more direct and concrete. And whenever he talks about it, you might say in an aggressive way, he also includes himself in it. So he kind of like uses himself as a case study, you might say. So it's more confessional mm-hmm. in that way. Um, but no, you're absolutely right. None of these things are new, uh, yet they are represented within uh, the culture of our of our of our of our religion, our common faith, in this profoundly kind of anachronistic way. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know what you think of this comparison. And by the way, I love the correction you made about the sort of how sure one is when one is black 
that one has experienced racism. Uh, I think this is actually a key difference between my understanding of at least the kind of Mexican American community is this um, this kind of almost cultural refusal to say out loud this is racist or you know like there's a kind there's there's all there's a kind of moderate sensibility culturally I've always found um, which has not made us as a community I think. Um, the best allies for anti-black racism, nor the best advocates for ourselves in many cases. Uh, but that was, I th thought, a really key distinction. One thing I was thinking, though, is that like we hear a lot about how, how Catholics are poorly catechized today. And I sometimes wonder, like, when was the generation of the greatly catechized Catholics, right? Um, but to the extent that that's true, like, a lot of Catholics, even the most well-catechized, are clearly very poorly read on matters of social history or like, you know, like for all the great catechesis they might have on Catholicism in a kind of decontextualized way from social context, they really don't know a lot about, you know, uh, the black intellectual tradition, for instance. And I've had a lot of people ask me to act, to kind of give them referrals and I'd send it I basically send everyone to Du Bois first um, <laughs> how would you I mean from your understanding from your unique story that really powerful uh, genealogy you have uh, taking you to to, to, to apartheid in, in South Africa I mean uh, how do you gather together your your kind of uh, what are the what are the books what are the formative uh, uh, study experiences that go beyond your own direct first person experience? Well, I would say the way that you said, and most Catholics would agree that most people aren't that well catechized. When And when you look at like 67% of Catholics don't even believe in the true presence in, in the Eucharist, then that kind of attests to that. I would say similarly that most Americans are not well learned in American history. Yeah. And that includes the history of... Um, racism in America yeah. and I I always tell my kids they get tired of when I say this but I don't I feel like I didn't really learn American history until I took African American history courses when I went to college and yeah. it felt like that just filled in the gaps of so much sure. and um I would as far as um for like more present-day racism that we're facing, I would point people towards books like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, uh -huh. Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Um, there's a book that came out in 2018, Rethinking Incarceration. Yeah. Um, and because the we're, I would say we're not even that familiar as an American people with like slavery and with, um, with, the civil rights movement, Jim Crow, but we're even less familiar with its new manifestation as mass incarceration. Sure. And when sure. you look at, for example, the way that slavery lasted for centuries because people dehumanized African-Americans, they said that they were less than human, that they yeah. were more like um, animals than, than like slaves, that they deserved or they, you know, that somehow um, God let them be 
slaves, you know, I, and it, and, and likewise now we have just come to accept that over 2 million people are incarcerated and locked up in cages. And like, literally, if you look at the way that, um, people who are incarcerated are treated, they're abused by guards they're abused by other prisoners they're worked but they're they don't they make like pennies to you know to dollars two dollars a day i think it's like the max you have um people who are fighting fires in california who are incarcerated and it's like when you look at what's happening today it's the same thing where um majority black and brown people are treated less than it's right. like if you're imprisoned or if you were imprisoned, you're the untouchables in society where it's like, oh, well, you should be treated like that. Oh, you deserve that, you know? Right. right. I think this is definitely true. I mean, the uh, the carceral uh, system in, in this country is even historically, and this is actually one thing that um, I think whenever... Uh, I think these are imbricated in each other, but whenever the focus moves from, for instance, incarceration to even just like policing and, mm-hmm. and those kinds of things, um, mm-hmm. I'm thinking back in Texas, like, you know, the Texas Rangers, uh, and I'm not talking about the baseball team, um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, a lot of their role had to do with uh, chasing after um, uh, escaped enslaved, uh, enslaved people who had, who, who, had escaped and also maintaining order within community within non-white communities uh Mm -hmm. which included in many cases uh terrorizing them and this included Mm -hmm. indigenous you know uh hispanic and and and, and black folks in, in 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 texas um and so whenever these communities uh see a police officer (laughs) um there seems to be some reasonable sensibility for them to not simply see them through their present tense, uh, who they claim to be in present tense, but also to understand um, what that institution means in relation to their community, which I think is difficult for someone who, you know, I, I was mentioning this on, an, on another show this last week of like, um, there are people who are protected by laws that literally exist to protect against discrimination against them. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, and above all, uh, African-Americans. Um, but our communities are, are protected under law, whereas whenever you're white or whenever you uh, your community moves into this kind of white center, you don't need to have laws protecting you because you're, you're safe. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And in the same way, I think the 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 understanding of like prison ab- abolition or or police abolition or these ideas, they don't mean like get rid of as a zero sum game. They mean get rid of the legacy and the historical relationships between overt oppression and the ways in which the carceral state is still operating by the same shadow logic of uh, of slavery. I mean that's. That's my understanding, at least. Well, one thing I was thinking about, because in San Francisco and in Los Angeles, um, they at the city councils actually voted 
to um, divert some of the money away from the police budgets to um, other like community organizations or other um, like non-police responses. And I know in San Francisco, they have a, they trained a non-police response to respond to like mental health calls and things like that. Sure. But I was thinking to myself, we have spent since the war on drugs in the 80s <laughs> billions of dollars making prisons right yeah and it was like a prison industrial complex where it was like let's race to build more and more sure. prisons and these are public and private prisons yeah yeah exactly. yeah that's what exactly. i was gonna say yeah. some of these are for-profit prisons yeah. where they literally have a quota that they have to be a hundred percent full or else they'll lose money yeah so there's incentive to have the prisons stocked. But so I was thinking though, let's say that a mental health ban comes. I can't get over your use of the word stocked, by the way. I mean, that's exactly right, but it's, ex it's chilling. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But um, it's like, it's like, of course it's not cattle, but that's the logic, right? That's shadow logic at its core. I just, I just had to highlight that because you you nailed it there, but it sent a it sent a cold shiver down my spine. <laughs> Continue though. So, when let's say that a mental health crisis is happening, and then someone needs to get help, think about how easy it is for the police to pick someone up and throw them in prison or throw them in jail because we have that there. But in our communities, how many places do we have for people? who need mental health, help, help. Yeah. How many, like, we don't have the infrastructure for other issues other than incarcerating people. Yeah. We have spent so much money on policing and imprisoning people to the expense of funding what the community needs. Sure. Like, you know, mental health, education, um, domestic violence prevention, substance abuse treatment. It, you know, we need all, we need funds to be flowing to those type of um, community investments so we can really help people, not just lock them up behind bars. No, absolutely. I mean, even just, um, I've often told people like, if you don't like the word abolition and you don't like abolish it, please, just use demilitarization <laughs> and demilitarize the p police. And um, because I honestly feel like sometimes that metaphor is almost more effective because it shows that like the, the, the militancy of the nation against communities that it's been oppressed always is always justified as like well they deserved it or, or there was an act of war or this is a cat uh, you know a, a double effect or there's all kinds of fancy ways to think about that and i honestly think that in many cases people think the same thing about the uh the despicable uh uh treatment of communities of color by by police and 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 and, and as kind of like a it's kind of a military sensibility right um not to mention the fact that they literally walk around with militarized grade weapons and mm -hmm. you know all kinds mm -hmm. of that kind of stuff but this is really important i wonder if i can ask you a somewhat um 
a difficult question maybe, but but it's it's one that gets us to kind of the beginning where you started um, because we began uh, talking about your work at, as a novelist and as a writer, and in particular your upcoming novel of Last Place Seen, um, which in some sense gets into some of these topics. I wonder though, like you're so, um, from your work at Black Catholic Messenger as, as a Catholic, but but also just, you know, as a, as a black woman, you're, you're so clearly invested and motivated and 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 socially conscious and aware um the question is i guess you know do you getting all the way back to that beginning part do you see yourself as a writer and as a writer of fiction as a novelist um how do you see the relationship between these concerns about what we might call in scare quotes the real world on the one hand and this real art of creating um, alternate universes and alternate worlds on the other and in, in your writing and in your novels. Do you, do you kind of see the, the, the contrast I'm trying to make there and ask about? Yeah. Um, and I think that fiction has a, can, can possibly have a way to um, touch people and in a way that nonfiction can't do sometimes uh-huh. and like I'm thinking about like Harriet Beecher Stowe in her novel Uncle Tom's Cabin which sure. came out in like um I think 1852 or something like that yeah. and it depicted the um conditions that slaves or enslaved African Americans were um facing at that time and I think it was like the most read novel of that century. Yeah. But it really energized the anti-slavery movement. And it was able to tap in to like the, the um, enslaved people's humanity in a way that someone who's just lecturing at you yeah. would not be able to do. And I think that that's, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 continue, please. I have another example in mind, but I want you to go on, please. Well, I was just going to say that I think, like, for example, when I'm talking about mass incarceration, I've noticed that when that people will really rally behind, like, saying, like, anti-racist. But when you start talking about some of the things, concrete steps that can be taken to dismantle racism like you said like diverting funds away from police departments or like looking at topics like mass incarceration how did we get there how do we get out people no longer rally around those ideas yeah yeah and it's like you i i mean it kind of goes hand in hand with the whole like issue around privilege it's like people don't want to give up anything if they feel like divesting from the police in any amount might somehow make them personally less safe yeah they don't want to do it even though i don't i don't believe that that's going to make people less safe but if people feel like it might then they're they're not going to want to do it people don't want to give an inch they don't want to budge they don't want to give up anything to actually fix these problems so i feel like 
um, me talking is not going to reach a lot of people, me talking about these problems, but writing a story that humanizes someone who's going uh-huh. through that might touch them and open their eyes in a different way. Absolutely. I mean, you've talked about Amanda Gorman. We've talked about Toni Morrison. You can also think about Maya Angelou and, you know, Ralph Ellison for that matter. I mean, the... Um, this is something I probably actually, uh, I'll admit, I, I think I, I, I uh, perhaps misconstrued as someone who doesn't know any better that the black intellectual tradition is is somehow this like nonfiction, prosaic, historical uh, deposit of letters, whenever in fact it's filled with song and poetry mm-hmm. and, and, and story. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and in some sense, I mean, this is one of the things I love about Du Bois, in fact, is that like my favorite chapter of The Souls of Black Folk is a parable. It's a story on the coming of John. It's, it's, it's a fictionalized tale sitting next to his descriptions of kind of sociology of, of, of the time he's living in, his disputations with Booker T. Washington. Um, mm-hmm. And at the beginning of every chapter, he includes the staff of the music for for a song and then the final chapters on sorrow songs so like i think actually one of the truly um remarkable aspects of of any intellectual tradition is the fact that it's never reducible to its direct treatises think about the catholic intellectual tradition i mean how much music do we have how much art do we have how Mm -hmm. much you know, um, uh, story is how much biblical literature itself is this kind of stuff. You know, the the great the great Hebrew poems and all of that. Um, you've really kind of <laughs> you've expanded my my thinking here uh, and and opened my eyes to, to things I'm seeing. The one thing I almost interrupted interrupted you on is Mark Twain and Huck mm-hmm. Finn and mm-hmm. that relationship between between uh, uh, Huck and and Jim. Uh, mm-hmm. And I know that novel. I, I know it, it has. Uh, it's it was controversial about uh, canceling and stuff before people reinvented that again. Toni Morrison wrote a, 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 a foreword to one of the editions. Uh, I think it was like the Oxford University Press edition or something, where she defended the continued study and reading and the non-censorship of, for instance, uh, Twain's language, in particular his use of the N-word. Um, because for her, that story was ultimately an abolitionist and emancipatory story about this spiritual awakening. There's that scene in, 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 the, in, the, in the book where the ship uh, runs into to, to Jim and, 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 and Huck and it divides them. Mm. And they're thrown apart from each other just as they're starting to get kind of close and just as they're making their journey. And I always thought of that metaphor of, of the ship because there's been so many moments in our history as well that I also think people don't know where class coalitions, for instance, of, 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 of you know, the kind of uh, uh, the, the poor class coalitions of, of, of poor white sharecroppers and, and, and freedmen or, or of, you know, day laborers uh, and, 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 you know, I mean, all these kinds of, in fact, within my grandparents, uh, on my dad's side, they used to pick cotton on fields where on the diagonal of the field on the other side 
were African Americans who were picking, and when they were done, the leftover they could take home with them, and often poor whites would come in and pick. And those kinds of coalitions that emerged from from oftentimes class-based and labor-based, working-based politics. I think about that ship that divided uh, Huck and Jim sometimes as uh, as this force um, of, of of a kind of racism that that even gets maybe even a bit deeper into the prevention of of unionization and of real uh, coalitions in our own church. I've seen my community. I've seen the Hispanic church stand in the way of. of of, of anti of, of opposing anti-black racism for instance and i've tried to call it out when i can and i and i only know that though because i've seen it in myself and i've been there and done that and so i wonder you know yeah this last comment you did just really blew me up um because i think you're exactly right it's not just that 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 you're able to do more as a writer and as a novelist writing stories but that in some ways this is what these traditions always have been, and you're kind of continuing in that line. Does, does that make sense to you? Yeah, and it, when you mentioned um, that about stories in our Catholic tradition, I think of how big of a role the communion of saints play. Huh. And when you think of a saint, you don't just say, oh, what is that the patron saint of? You want to know that saint's story. You know, you want to kind of delve into their life and, you know, what exactly happened. And a lot of saints have, not a lot, but some saints that have left autobiographies. I'm thinking like St. Therese Lesseau or, you know. Yeah, and how those stories and autobiographies really connect us to those saints. And that that helps our faith grow on a personal level. Um, But I did want to... Um, say one thing about when you were talking about us kind of being divided, the races being divided. Yeah. Um, one of the things that Michelle Alexander writes in the New Jim Crow is about how before Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, he was organizing the Poor People's Campaign. Exactly. And yeah. he was exactly. trying to unite both white people and black people who were in poverty yes. around the, um, the inequality and that he was trying to have the next front of the civil rights movement focus on economic equality. Yes. That and anti-war, both. Yes, and, you, and anti-war. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one, of the, one of the things that she illustrates in the book that is lesser known is that a lot of the um, conservatives and the Republicans who um, gained power after Martin Luther King, they they divided those people who were initially starting to be um, like working together around class issues and then yeah. brought in race when they were talking about um, like the concept of law and order and yep. blaming the rise in crime and riots because there were riots after Martin Luther King Jr. Sure, was assassinated sure they yeah. but they were they were there was um, also dividing. another civil rights act <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. and they were trying to use these um they were trying to play on people's fears and say oh black people look now there's crime since black people moved into your neighborhood yeah 
you know, and yeah. like, oh, the the lawless black people who are going because uh, Martin Luther King had said that it, it's right to um, not obey laws if they're unjust. Yes. So they yeah. would say that. Oh, he took that out of Augustine, actually, another great African. Yeah. Uh, the letter to Birmingham jail. Yeah. And, it, it, and the thing is that so this is where a lot of the roots of mass incarceration started to be sown because it started to divide people and to say black people are inherently dangerous. Yeah. And when you combine the war on drugs that was really a war on black and brown communities and you have I think it was like almost 80% of the um, people who were incarcerated and the population went from 300,000 people incarcerated in the 70s to over 2 million in a span of 30 years wow. and and that was that was large, largely because of the war on drugs and up to like 80% were drug related crimes non-violent yeah. so when so you do see even now, and I've seen this with Catholics, which is really um, discouraging and sad, where they say that black people, it's the same, um, the same stereotype that black people deserve to be killed by the police, that black people deserve to be racially profiled because they're more dangerous. Right. And that is a lie That's straight a lie. from the pit of hell. Yeah. You know, and it's like, this is the uh, these are the type of issues that we are advocating for as black Catholics to see black people as fully human people who are not inherently dangerous. They are made in the image and likeness of God. Mm-hmm. You know, they are they are beloved children of God. That's how you should see black people, not view them and be afraid of them. Yeah. Wow. Um thank you for adding that context there uh, to that to that point you know um, the point can be overextended uh, by certain uh, I find uh, at least uh, uh, usually often white sometimes not uh, Marxist <laughs> who want <clears throat> who want to take a class reductionist approach to politics and say race is only you know muddying the water so to speak there but uh but no, these these uh, real uh, contexts are are important. I think uh, to to keep in mind. I wonder now as we kind of wrap up, I'm uh, I'm reminded a bit of of, uh, <laughs> of your answer to the to the my framing of Jill Scott, for instance, and and I'm thinking of, of in particular the song, the way where you know that first lyric is "Woke up this morning with a smile on my face." Mm-hmm. Um, and that chorus, which is like the chorus, is it the way you love me? Um, mm. You know, the black intellectual tradition, black letters, the African-American expression of, of, of voice and thought is, is many things, but let, let us not uh, for one second forget that it's a, a, a message of of, of joy, of, of, of it's it's a smi- often I think a, a smiling message, and it's ultimately I think uh, a story of love and, and a message of love and of a kind of radical love that 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 is, um, in some ways, uh, 
almost unrequited in a way. I wonder if you have anything to say as a writer, as, as a novelist, as a storyteller, as a black woman, as a black Catholic, uh, as, as a journalist, as an activist, as any of these things um, to kind of take us out on, on these notes of, 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 you know, we'll take them right out of, you know, Scott's uh, uh, deposit, a poet that she was, you know, woke up this morning with a smile on my face. Is it the way you love me? Well, I would um, agree with you because I'm not motivated by um, hating racism or hating um, incarceration, hating police. I, I wouldn't say that I hate anything, but I would say that I love black people. I love the black community. I love my black family members so much and I want them to thrive so much that I will do what I need to do to dismantle the systems that treat us as less than. So it is really, and you know, I feel that it is a God-given call to really love people in a radical way, in a way that is not done by most Catholics in, in the United States. and. I feel like that is what really propels me um, and my work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Folk Phenomenology Season 1, and special thanks to Alessandra Harris. I would like to again thank my sponsors, Whip and Stock Publishers, Give Us This Day, The Institute for Christian Socialism, Solidarity Hall, Revelation Cable Company, Where Peter Is, The Juan Diego Network, and Commonweal Magazine, and special thanks once again to our featured sponsor, Black Catholic Messenger. The friends of the show are The Commonweal Podcast, The Gloria Purvis Show, Disinherited Podcast, Davud Gosley, Up Too Late with Teresa Zoe Williams, Conversation on Tap, Saintly Witnesses, Kinder Conservative, The Show, Gregory B. Sadler, and Cush Classics. As season one starts to wind down, I should say that season two will have a new roster of friends. Hopefully we'll keep many of our friends, but I'd love to add more. And I'll also be uh, reaching out to uh, our present sponsors and also looking for some new ones. So if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of the show or a friend of the show, uh, feel free to be in touch with me. Make sure to take a look at the show notes for links to all of the wonderful friends, all of the wonderful sponsors, and in particular our featured sponsor, Black Catholic Messenger. You can also find a tip jar uh, where I'll continue my fundraising efforts for season two. I hope I'm not looking ahead too far yet as there is still so much uh, to share within season one. I would beg you to continue your sharing and if you haven't started your sharing, to start it now. Please share this episode. Subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform. Make some noise on social media. Um, Go back and maybe listen to uh, a gap in uh, in the 16, 17 episodes, really, that have come out so far. Uh, as the show develops towards its ending, I believe that there is some sense of wholeness to this season, and I really look forward to sharing it with you uh, in that way. Uh, 
I love people bringing up old episodes and talking about their favorite moments and all those things. They not only help the show expand its reach, but they also help me uh, continue sharing the good news of the show. Next week, I'll be sharing a very special uh, episode of an interview that I did before Folk Phenomenology even began its production. This was the original interview that I did with Gloria Purvis for what became the Church Life Journal um, interview publication, The Gift of Blackness to the Church. This is the unedited uh, raw audio from that uh, first conversation, which was so instrumental in creating uh, folk phenomenology as a podcast. Uh, Full disclosure, uh, this is a replacement episode for one of the three debates uh, which were recorded, uh, but which was uh, asked to be withdrawn from the podcast. But I think that um, the bonus material of getting to share the interview with Gloria, uh, this doubled uh, Gloria Purvis presence on season one, is uh, a wonderful uh, thing to share, and we're not losing anything in that exchange. So be sure to tune in next week and, uh, and listen uh, to that interview that took place in the summer of 2020. So this is also, in a way, archiving uh, that particular historical moment, the sentiments and the feelings and, above all, uh, the friendship that started um, from that moment uh, between myself and Gloria. Folk Phenomenology is written, hosted, recorded, and produced by Sam Rocha. That is me. If you'd like to find out more about me and my work, you can go to www.samrocha.com and read more about me and see uh, some links to some of the things that I've uh, created. I also want to let you know that if you are in the Dallas-Fort Worth area uh, on October 27th, so next week, I will be giving a talk at the University of Dallas at 7 p.m. on the intersection between critical race theory and Catholic social teaching. So um, all are invited uh, to attend that event. Well, I better get ready to go and hopefully meet uh, Nate Tinner Williams and the wonderful students at George Washington University this evening. Um, But until next week, go out and love the world. Dilexi Mundum. What is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it, is because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's the most interesting, out of the word, concept, idea. My job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. You love you find it. Mm-hmm. you find it. Mm-hmm. you find it. Mm-hmm. you find it. Mm-hmm. you find it. And you don't know where it will carry you. And it is a terrifying thing. Love it is the only human possibility, but it's terrifying. And Through the eyes of our ears, We see the beauty of hope. We see the beauty of pain. We see the beauty.